The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. If you've been working your way through the Gospel of Luke with us on Sunday mornings for throughout this year, you may recall earlier in the year, I think it was earlier this year, perhaps it was last, I can't recall. When we got to chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, I told you we would skip over that at the time and we would rewind, if you will, and come back to it around Christmas time. And so that's precisely what we'll do this morning and next week, looking at the, the birth of Christ as recorded by Luke. This morning we'll give attention to uh, verses 1 through 7 in Luke chapter 2. Here's what Luke records for us. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And, there, and, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. On February 3rd, 1966, in the middle of, or in the midst of the Vietnam War, a Navy pilot by the name of Gerald Coffey, a captain, got into his aircraft with his bombardier navigator, Bob Hansen. They were aboard the USS Kitty Hawk and they took off on a re- what, what they thought would be a routine reconnaissance flight, uh, taking pictures of a particular bridge near the coast of Vietnam. The reconnaissance flight went as, as, as usual. It went like clockwork according to Captain Coffey. For the most part, they arrived at their destination, took pictures of the bridge that they were supposed to take, and turned and headed back on a relatively routine flight until all of a sudden what was routine became very, very unusual. In a moment, without any forewarning, they were hit by enemy fire and their aircraft went down into the water. And Captain Coffey was injured badly in the crash, but he was captured by the enemy soldiers and became a prisoner of war. He remained a prisoner of war for quite some time, and if you look up his story and you read, you can find his vivid description of what it was like to be a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. He describes in great detail what that looked and felt like. I read that every year somewhere in the Christmas season 
because something he says in the midst of his recounting of what took place has always struck in my memory. In the midst of recounting what it was like to be in a Vietnamese prison and to have torture happening on a regular daily basis, he says this. He says, Christmas 1968 stands out in my memory. From the cell, I could hear the guards laughing and talking with their families. They were on holiday, holiday routine. For the most of the day, I listened as the son of the head guard, a child of about three or four, played with a toy car. I could hear him revving and honking just as I had heard my own little boys on past Christmases. I heard him cry when he hurt himself some way, and I heard my own children laughing and crying in my memory. I had never known what real loneliness could be. And then, I thought about the simplicity of Christ's birth. Here, there was absolutely nothing to distract me from the awesomeness of Christmas. No commercialism, no presents, very little food. I was beginning to appreciate my own spirituality because I'd been stripped of everything by which I had measured my identity. Rank, uniform, money, family. Yet, I continued to find strength within, and I realized that although I was hurting and lonely and scared, this might be the most significant Christmas of my life. The testimony of Captain Coffee has always stood out in my memory because I'm amazed at how such a time of reflection in an enemy prison could lead one to that conclusion. That in the midst of depravity, in the midst of deprivation, in the midst of intense pain and fear and anxiety, one could reflect on the very text that we're looking at this morning and find in it the most significant Christmas of his life. He mentions it's because of the simplicity of Christ's birth. And as we read the story, or we just read it, and as we walk through it, you can't help but be struck by the simplicity of it all. At the end of the day, what Christmas has to offer is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, born as a baby, born to die for our sins. That's the only significant, lasting thing that defines Christmas. And somehow in the midst of a Vietnamese prison with everything else in life stripped away, he realized that that was all that he had. And Captain Coffee realized that that was all that he needed. And was perhaps for him the most significant realization of his life. I suspect none of us can truly identify with that experience. We've never been prisoners of a war and we can use our imagination to understand or try to understand what that's like. We live in a different time and we live a different experience. And our experience of Christmas year to year is a busy, busy time where rather than being stripped of things, things continue to get added into our world and added into our life that quite often just squeeze out and clutter up the simplicity of the Christmas story. 
And as that happens, I'm afraid that we lose the wonder of it. And we lose what it is that Captain Coffee truly held on to in 1968 on that Christmas. Luke gives us the birth of Jesus in very simple and humble terms. He doesn't embellish the story. He doesn't give us details that we would probably like to have had. He simply tells us in very plain, simple language about the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary and to Joseph. So this morning, our task is to simply reflect on the words of Luke and to see what God has for us here in a very simple and a very, very familiar story perhaps the most familiar in all of Scripture. Luke begins his account of the birth of Christ by simply telling us, in those days, a decree went out. I don't know about you, but I would have preferred Luke to have given us a specific day on which these things took place, but he chose not to. You and I celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, on December 25th, though December 25th is quite likely not at all the date on which these things took place. We actually don't know when these things took place. We can't identify with any more specificity really than what Luke gives us, that it was in those days. We don't know what month. We don't know what day of the week. We don't know what season of the year. In fact, we don't even know for sure what year this took place. Likely somewhere around 4 B.C., we do know that by the end of the 4th century, December 25th had become sort of the accepted day by the Christian church to celebrate the birth of Christ. There's historical backdrop to that that we won't spend time on this morning, but it's fun to look at if you're interested in these sorts of things. But best we can tell from history, it's just a purely arbitrary date. There have been numerous other dates that have been speculated as to the actual date of the birth of Christ. But Luke doesn't tell us that. Matthew doesn't tell us the date. Luke just simply says it was in those days. In those days, somewhere around the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. In those days, the birth of Christ took place. In the first three verses, he simply says this. It was in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. It's the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. As we look through the text this morning, I want you to see three things. I want you to see the sovereignty of God at work in the birth of Jesus. I want, to, I want you to see that. I want you to see how what's taking place that Luke gives us in these few short verses is... is a part of the sovereignty of God. These are not random things. Nothing that takes place in this story is in fact random. It's all being orchestrated by God himself as part of his divine plan of redemption. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the birth of Christ, and I want you to see also the truthfulness of God's word in the birth of Christ. The sovereignty of God, the truthfulness of his word and the perfect timing of God. That's what we'll look at this morning. So Luke begins here by giving us a historical reference. 
though he's careful to anchor, we've seen this in Luke throughout the gospel so far. Luke is, is a historian, and he's very careful at times to give us historical markers so that it's clear to us that what he's telling us is not a fantasy, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a made-up series of events, that what he's actually telling us are events that took place in actual human history. And so Luke tells us about some things that are going on in human history at the time, and that's what he's telling us here about this decree from Caesar Augustus. But he has another purpose. He wants us to see that God is at work behind the scenes of human history. The human history isn't, in fact, random things that are just taking place, sort of rolling along without any rhyme or reason. That it is, in fact, God himself who is unwinding history with a purpose and orchestrating all events toward his end. And so he begins us, uh, helping us to see that by telling us about a, a decree that comes from Caesar Augustus for a national registration. Now, you may not know much about Caesar Augustus, but the name Augustus means majestic or highly honored one. Majestic or highly honored one. I suspect none of us in the room go by the nickname Augustus. Is that fair to say? None of us are quite as majestic or highly honored as Caesar Augustus. That wasn't his birth name. His birth name was Gaius Octavius. If you're thinking about having kids, I know we've got some on the way. If you're trying to figure out a name, I think there's one to throw in the mix right there. Gaius Octavius. Uh, he went for short by Octavian. Uh, it's a dignified name. He was born in 63 B.C. He is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So maybe if you haven't heard of Augustus Caesar, you've probably heard of Julius Caesar somewhere in your educational experience, right? You've heard of him. So this, this man, Octavian, was actually the, by birth the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, but he was adopted as a son and officially declared as the heir to Julius Caesar's throne on the Roman Empire. And so he succeeds him. He, exceeds, or, uh, he rises to the throne after the death of Julius Caesar, not immediately, but after a little bit of time. And he leads Rome, the Roman Empire, in a time of tremendous prosperity and peace. He's a, a successful leader by all counts, militarily, politically, socially, in every way. He is a successful leader who has a, a significant reign over the Roman Empire. It's during his time that the Pax Romana, another word you might have heard somewhere in your history lessons in middle school or high school or somewhere, well, an extended season of peace in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was vast at this time, incredibly vast. And for a, a brief season, at least brief historically, there was this season of peace where, where there was not much war going on, where things had calmed down and people could live in, in general peace. He became so powerful as a leader and as a, as a figure in the Roman Empire that he was, he was worshipped as, as a godlike figure in various parts of the empire. One inscription, ancient inscription that was found, calls him, quote, the savior of the whole world. That's some pretty incredible worship being leveled at the feet of any man. And it's this man who's at the height of his power when the events unfold in Bethlehem that Luke records in chapter 2. And so it's this man, Caesar Augustus, who issues this, this decree that a national registration needs to take place. He wants to take a census, if you don't know what a registration is. Have you ever had the census folks come by and knock on your door? Have you ever done that? That hasn't been that long ago that we took a census, right? And I remember the folks walking around and, and taking that census. Well, they took census. I don't know what, what's plural of census. You tell me later. Censuses? 
I don't know. They took them back in the Roman Empire as well. And Augustus Caesar decreed one at this particular time. Now, what's the purpose of a census in the Roman Empire? Well, there's two purposes. One is taxation, and the other is military service. They want to locate and identify able-bodied men who could fight in the military. In this particular case, in, in Luke chapter 2, this particular census largely, we think, revolves around taxation because we have Mary and Joseph participating in it, and they were Jewish, and Jews were exempt from military service in the Roman Empire. So the likelihood here is that we've got a census taking place, being decreed by Caesar Augustus, in order to collect taxes. And all God's people say, woohoo, right? Taxes, we love those. John MacArthur says this, in, tax, in a taxation census, the people registered their names, their occupations, their property holdings, and family members to the Roman equivalent of the American IRS. So Augustus was doing what powerful leaders do. He was finding new ways to extract more wealth through taxation from his people. Isn't that what powerful rulers tend to do? So he decrees that everyone needs to go be registered. He doesn't want people slipping through the cracks, skipping out on their taxes. And so he sets in motion by his simple decree uh, an incredible movement of people throughout the nation. People traveled back to their ancestral homes to be registered in this census that was decreed. There was a price to be paid if you did not participate. But what appears to be a great show of power by Augustus is in reality a testimony to the sovereignty of God. You see, Caesar's decree for this census was part of God's divine plan. God was orchestrating the birth of Jesus, though Augustus Caesar has no idea that he's a part of God's orchestrated plan. He's doing what leaders do. Phil Riken says this, he says, although Caesar would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph with his fiancée, Mary. And this young couple was getting ready to give birth to their firstborn son, a son who would rule the world, a son whose power would far exceed that of Caesar Augustus or any other mere human earthly ruler. God's using Augustus as an unwitting pawn in his plan of redemption for mankind. Caesar has no idea what's going on, but God knows precisely what's going on. You see, the birth of Jesus needs to take place in Bethlehem. But the problem is Mary and Joseph, the parents, earthly at least, of Jesus, don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. And so God needs to move this young couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so he uses this selfish, materialistic world leader to orchestrate the move. And the point in bringing that up is just simply for you to realize and for me to reflect upon the point for a moment that the most powerful man in the entire world at the time is nothing more than a pawn in the hand of God. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
though men rise to power in this earth, none exceed the power of God. And their hearts can be turned by God at a moment's notice. And that's precisely what is happening. Augustus Caesar thinks he's just orchestrating a a wealth scheme where he can generate more taxes. He has no idea that he's actually orchestrating a critical move in God's plan of human redemption. But that's precisely what he's doing. I'm sure that as this story unfolded in real life, real time, Mary and Joseph at various points did not understand their circumstances. We know that they had already been informed prior to this, prior to the pregnancy coming full term, that what was going on, angels had visited, right? And told them, told Mary, Mary, you're going to give birth, even though you and Joseph have never had any relations. You're going to give birth, and it's a miraculous birth. You're going to become impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And the one you're going to give birth to is going to be very unique. He's going to be Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And I'm sure at the beginning, when Mary first got that message, she would have never imagined the circumstances of her birth to have played out the way that they actually played out. There was nothing comfortable and nothing easy about the way things went, as we see walking through this text. And I'm sure that there were plenty of moments along the way where Mary and Joseph did not understand what was going on. Why, God, do we have to leave Nazareth? Why, in the, at the end of a pregnancy, do we need to make a long journey to Bethlehem and risk having to give birth in an unprepared and unpredicted place? I'm sure it wasn't any fun to be fully pregnant in a town bustling with people where everybody is crowding in to register for the census and not even being able to find a decent place to get off your feet and rest. I'm sure the circumstances from their human point of view must have seemed all wrong to them. Yet God was orchestrating every single move along the way. You know, today things are similar. Powerful people go all about their way, doing their own things, believing that they're just doing whatever they want to do totally oblivious to the fact that they can never escape the sovereignty of God. God still uses ungodly people to orchestrate his ends. You and I get pretty worked up at times about elections and about who's going to be the next president, who's going to be the next senator, and who's going to be the next representative, and who's going to be the next governor, and all these things that relate to human leaders and human rulers. And I don't mean to insinuate that those things don't matter. They do matter, and we participate. But our level of fear and our level of anxiety and our level of excitement quite often rises far too high because we believe those people have far more power than what they actually have. Every one of them has a heart that's like a stream of water in the hand of God, and he moves them where he will. But also, in a sort of micro sort of standpoint, people like you and me just live our lives, and quite often we look around and we wonder if things are going the way they're supposed to. We look around our lives, and, and things are, are playing out in our lives in a way that, that we didn't plan, in ways that we didn't expect, and, and perhaps in ways that we don't particularly enjoy, and we're tempted to fear, and we're tempted to anxiety, and we're tempted to, to discouragement and to anger at the things that are happening in our lives as though the things that are happening are somehow spiraling out of control. It's good for us to be reminded 
that whether it be national rulers or the details of our own lives, God's sovereignty is always at work. That God is always sovereignly orchestrating the events of our lives for our good and for his great glory. And quite often our temporary pain is a part of his big picture that we'll only see in retrospect if we ever see the whole picture at all. Maybe you're here this morning and something's going on in your world and you're wondering if life's out of control. Believe me, this morning your life is not out of control. It's very much in control of a sovereign God. A sovereign God who can move Augustus Caesar to decree a census in order to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Galilee. He can orchestrate the events of your life just the same. And he is. But it's not just his sovereignty that we see. It's the truthfulness of his word that we see at play here as well. Because we're told in verses 4 and 5 that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Now Bethlehem is a very important location. I suspect that you know that Old Testament prophecy in Micah chapter 5 had already identified Bethlehem as the location for the birth of the coming Messiah. In Micah 5.2, we're told this by God through the mouth of the prophet, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days widely understood to be a prophecy of Messiah. There is no other ruler that was coming who would identify as one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Only the Messiah fits that description. God had spoken that through the prophet many generations before. He had made clear exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And Luke clearly understands the importance of this prophecy. And he wants to make sure that you and I and any who read his gospel see clearly that God's word is always 100% true and it's always 100% accurate. When God speaks, it will happen. When God says something, he'll do it. And in order to reinforce that, he sets out to explain to us exactly how the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, even though his parents lived in Nazareth. If you're not familiar with the landscape or the geography of Israel, Bethlehem is located about five miles outside of a very busy Jerusalem. You can see in proximity where it is compared to Nazareth. Nazareth is in the north, up near the Sea of Galilee, whereas Bethlehem is down in the south near the Dead Sea. So it's quite a trek somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on the route taken of 75 to 90 miles to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And you couldn't just hop in your minivan and make the trip in an hour and a half. It was on foot and by donkey, not an easy movement. But Bethlehem was a very small rural suburb of the big city. But this small little village was a very significant place biblically. Though it wasn't geographically significant in its day, biblically a lot took place in Bethlehem. If you've read your Old Testament, you may recall some things that took place there. You may remember Jacob's wife, Rachel, a prominent figure in the early part of the Old Testament. She dies in childbirth, and it's there in Bethlehem where she dies and is buried. Her tomb was still around at the time of Christ. 
if you flip a few pages over in your Bible and you run into a very small book called the book of Ruth, which we studied just a few years ago, the book of Ruth and all the events that take place in the book of Ruth with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and this Moabite woman who comes in and, and is a part of this tragic story, at least tragic in the beginning, but it turns out good stays with her mother-in-law after the death of her own husband and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law. And all these things that take place with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and ends up that, that Boaz and Ruth get married and they settle down and, and they prosper. And you know where they settle down and where they prosper? It's, I bet you could guess, it's Bethlehem. That's exactly right. And if you flipped over to the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find the prophet Samuel being told by God that it's time to anoint a new king. And so he travels down to Bethlehem to the home of a man by the name of Jesse. And he surveys all of his boys to see which one might be the new king. And he doesn't find any in the initial lineup. And he asks them, do you have any other kids that aren't in the lineup? And they say, well, we have this one other kid. I mean, he's just a shepherd. He's out there with the sheep. And in comes David one who would be a man after God's own heart, the great king of Israel, in Jesse's home in Bethlehem. This was a small, rural, out-of-the-way place, but an awful lot happened in this town. In Micah's prophecy, it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah, given two names. The word Bethlehem simply means the house of bread. It's semi-ironic, isn't it, that a place called the House of Bread is where the Messiah is born, and it's not very long into his ministry before the Messiah himself is saying things like, recorded in John 6, 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. The one who was born in the House of Bread identifies himself as the bread of life. And that theme is woven throughout his preaching. It's called here the city of David, and it may be confusing as you read your Bible because quite often Jerusalem is called the city of David. And Jerusalem is, in a sense, the city of David. It's, where, it's the city from which David reigned. But Bethlehem is, in a very proper sense, the city of David because it is David's hometown, and it's where he was born. It's his ancestral family home. And so Luke refers to it as the city of David. And it's to this location that Mary and Joseph need to go because, again, Caesar has decreed that they go to their ancestral home, so they have to travel to Bethlehem because we're told here that Joseph was of the house in the lineage of David. Again, because I know you're astute students and you remember everything that's said on every Sunday morning when you gather for worship and you listen to preaching, right? My expectations of you are quite high. I believe these things don't bust my bubble. You know that when we were studying the first chapter of Luke, that Luke has already made this clear because when an angel visited Mary, Luke is careful to record for us that the angel said that this child is going to be great. He's going to be son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And a little further in chapter 1, we ran into a, a man by the name of Zechariah who praised what was going on here. He saw God what God was doing that the Messiah was coming through Mary's child and he said God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David 
So Luke's already made clear that this child to be born to Mary is going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to be of the lineage of David. And now he tells us in chapter 2 that not only is that the case, but Joseph, his earthly father, is of the house and lineage of whom? Of David. Now we won't go back through the family tree because we did that in, in chapter 3. But again... I know you remember these things. You know that both Mary and Joseph trace their lineage back to David, right? Just nod your heads this way. I don't know any different if you nod your head that way. We know that, that Jesus is a, a blood descendant of David through Mary, and we know that he's a legal descendant of David through Joseph. So both parts of the family tree go back to David. And so it's to Bethlehem that this family needs to travel. We're told that they're betrothed. They're betrothed. They're in this period of betrothal. And again, a thing that might be confusing as you read the, the gospel, sometimes they're referred to as betrothed and sometimes they're referred to as married. They could, in fact, be both at the time because betrothal and marriage didn't look then like it looks now. A betrothal, and it was an engagement that came in stages, and it was every bit a legal sort of binding contract from the very beginning. That doesn't work that way in our culture, does it? You get engaged... But when you're engaged, ah, it's not exactly legal, right? You know, you hear people say, well, I'm engaged. You say, well, yeah, but you're not married, right? It's not the same thing as being married in our culture. It's a temporary arrangement that may lead to marriage, or it may not, right? Even with the best of intentions, it may not. And if it doesn't, what do we do? Well, we have a conversation, and we say, you know, this thing's not working out. Let's just go our separate ways. And everybody goes their separate ways in peace. Well, not always in peace, right? But they go their separate ways. No harm, no foul. In the first century, it wasn't like that. When you became engaged or betrothed, it was a legal arrangement. And in order to get out of it, you literally had to have a divorce. It was a, a legal proceeding that needed to take place. But though betrothed, they had not yet consummated their marriage. It was not complete. And we know that because we've already been told that in Luke's gospel. And so it's while they're betrothed that they have to make this 75 to 90 mile trek from, Na from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And Mary is quite very pregnant at the time. And we have some pregnant ladies in our church family right now, praise the Lord. We just had a, a one give birth, right? Frank and Dorothy just wel uh, welcomed in baby Elijah, right? Yeah, you, that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, you can give them like applause. That's wonderful. And we've got others, and so others on the way. But any of our pregnant ladies can tell you that at the end of pregnancy, when you're about to give birth, nobody's really up for a long, on-foot, 75 to 90-mile trek. Is that fair to say, ladies? Does not sound like a fun adventure for you in any way, shape, or form. And yet that's what this young couple has to do. And even though God had, had decreed this through the prophet Micah, it seems that when they arrive in Bethlehem, nobody is particularly looking for them. They simply seem to be anonymous strangers in the crowd. But to Bethlehem they arrive. And it's in Bethlehem that Jesus is born. And he's born there because God's word had already decreed that he would be. And when God says something, he tells the truth. God's word is always true. And it's always reliable. 
Whether people believe it or they reject it, it's always true. And what God says will come to pass will come to pass. He'll make sure that it comes to pass. And just as God said that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem, and he orchestrated all of the events of human history at the time to make that so, his word also tells us that the same Jesus is going to return. And he gives us some information about that. And you can count on that information just as much as you can count on Micah 5, 2. Whether the world is looking for him when he arrives or not, whether they believe it or not, indeed that Christ will come again. We get to verse 6. We see not just sort of the truthfulness of God's word at work here and the sovereignty of God's plan, but we see the perfection of his timing We're simply told in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. The time came for her to give birth. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, all of human history had been leading up to this moment and to this event. The eternal God had been working out his plan of redemption within the context of time from the Garden of Eden to this very moment. The plan of God for redemption had been progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament when sin first entered the human experience. God promised that he would bring redemption back in Genesis 3, verse 15. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden after sin enters the picture and God is speaking to Eve, and he says this, I'll put enmity between you, I'm sorry, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, that is her offspring, shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. A prophecy that redemption is going to come. Right at the very beginning, And if you flipped over a few pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, we see on on the stage of human history rises a man by the name of Abram who God changes the name to Abraham and he promises Abraham that he's going to be a blessing to the nations. In Genesis 12 and verse 2 and following, he says to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth be blessed and God establishes Israel as a part, the nation as a part of his unfolding plan of redemption his plan is to bring the Messiah out of this nation from the seed of Abraham to bring redemption to fallen humanity and if we flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 we see God speaking to David as king and he promises a savior from his lineage from his lineage When your days are fulfilled in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, there's a descendant that's coming out of your line. It's going to be your descendant, and he's a part of this unfolding plan of redemption. I'm going to redeem mankind through your offspring. Redemption is coming, and my plan is unfolding. And as we flip a few more pages over in the Old Testament, we get to the prophets, and we hear the prophets tell us that that plan is continuing to unfold, and it's going to come via 
a virgin birth, we're told in Isaiah chapter 7, and that the one that's going to be born, and told in Isaiah 49, is going to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 9, we're told he's going to sit on the throne of David, a repetition of the Davidic covenant and the promises to David. In Isaiah 49, we're told that he's going to be a light for the nations so that God's salvation can reach the end of the earth. God is unfolding this plan that was hatched at the very beginning in the fall, that he's going to redeem those who've fallen, that people like you and me who have rebelled against him, who have, who have done our own thing, who sinned against him in word and thought and deed over and over and over again, might have a way to be redeemed. God had a plan for that. And it's been unfolding all throughout human history. And what Luke records for us in two simple verses here, the humble birth of Jesus is the climax of that plan that's been playing for generations. All of the Old Testament was leading up to this birth in Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. Redemption would come and redemption has now come. The time has come, Luke says. The time had come. They've been waiting for the time for generations, but now the time had come. Redemption is here, Luke is saying. This is the most incredible event in human history up to this point. All of human history has been leading to this moment in this out-of-the-way village with this anonymous young teenage couple giving birth to the Messiah. There's no fanfare. There's no massive welcome. There's no crowd that gathers. There are no religious scholars who show up. It all takes place in an out-of-the-way place to a nobody teen couple in the midst of a very busy tax registration in the most humble of all circumstances the most significant thing that had happened to humanity. God chose the location, God chose the timing, and he chose the circumstances. Precisely where was Jesus born? Well, Luke doesn't tell us where Jesus was born, does he? You can look for yourself. Does he tell us where Jesus was born, like location physically in Bethlehem? He doesn't tell us, right? He tells us where he wasn't born. He wasn't born in an inn. We know that. I think we tend to think of him being born in a stable, though nowhere in the text is a stable mentioned here or in Matthew's gospel. We assume it's a stable because we are told that Mary lays him once he's born in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. So wherever they are, there's no plush baby bed. If you've been to any of the baby showers recently in the life of our church, you see the kind of gear that we get, right, for babies these days. I mean, all kinds of gear. When these babies are born around here, they have great places to sleep, I can tell you that. They have great places to sleep. Usually multiple great places to sleep. Mary and Joseph have none of that. Wherever they are, they don't have a plush bed. They only have a feeding trough for animals. That's all that's there. And they make it into a, ba a makeshift baby bed. He tells us there's no place for them in the inn. We, when we hear inn, we may think modern hotel. That's not exactly what we're thinking of here in terms of individual rooms. What, what Luke is talking about when he says an inn is, is a primitive guest house kind of a thing where groups of travelers could sort of sleep 
temporarily in a common room. It's kind of like sleeping in a public shelter or campground somewhere. Very primitive. But because of the crowd in Bethlehem at this time, even that place is full. And they can't sleep with the crowds of other travelers. So they have to settle for the next best thing, the place where the animals are kept, wherever that is. Some believe, and this certainly could be true, that many of the inns in the first century around this time were two-level establishments where the people slept in a common area upstairs and the evenings brought in the animals to the lower level and that's where the animals slept. So perhaps that was the kind of arrangement it was and the upper portion that was fit for humans sleeping was full and so Mary and Joseph were forced to sleep downstairs with the animals. An early tradition says that it was in a cave adjacent to the, to the area where the animals were kept. It could have been either one. In either case, it would have been a filthy and smelly, nasty and noisy place. Don't know if you tend animals much. Somebody was telling me recently they got some pigs. I think I remember who it is now. And uh, that it was a little more than they bargained for. If you keep animals, you know filthy, smelly, insects, noisy. There's not a comfortable place for Mary and Joseph. They're in with the animals. That's all they've got. It's the most humble of accommodations, and yet that's where they are. And it's in this squalid sort of condition that God steps into human history. And Luke gives it to us with this simple phrase. She gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. There, amidst the animals, Mary goes into labor. There appears to be no doctor or hospital present, just Joseph and animals. Ladies, imagine even in the best of circumstances, if it's just you and your husband and that's all you got. I'm thinking that's a hard day, right? Is that fair to say? I know most of your husbands, and I, I think it's a, it's a fair assessment. But here we have the worst of circumstances, and it's just Joseph and Mary. Just them. Childbirth is difficult enough, even in a modern hospital, but I can assure you that this particular event was not pleasant and was not fun. And giving birth to a, to a child in a place like this, I can assure you it was no silent night. It was not a silent night. Sing it all you like. But somehow, by God's grace, she gives birth, and she lives to tell about it. It's such a simple statement with such profound, unimaginable mystery. She gave birth to her firstborn son. It's in that very moment that all of human history has been waiting for in that very moment, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In that very moment, the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes forth from Mary's womb. In that very moment, the God of all creation who exists outside of time steps into the human experience and the human timeline and human history. The second person of the Trinity becomes a human baby. the all-knowing, 
the all-powerful, the ever-present, everywhere-present God. He takes on the limitations of a human body and a human mind. His only means of communication, a cry, requiring, like every other child, a regular primitive diaper change. His only sustenance, his mother's milk. The one who made Mary now completely and totally dependent upon her for his everything. It's in this moment that God the Creator enters into his creation. The most unimaginable, unbelievable thing. Mystery beyond mysteries. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, we're told. She swaddled him with cloths is another way of rendering it. Just as an ordinary mother would have done. She lies him in a manger. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Jesus' fashion statements and his clothing. Best I can tell, it only mentions it a few times. It mentions his clothing here, where he's clothed with swaddling cloths, signifying just sort of the humble humanity that he's born into. But we're told just before his crucifixion in John chapter 19 that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe after brutally beating his body. A purple robe of mockery and humiliation. And we're told not long after that that they took his dead body and they bound it in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Put on the clothing of death. But we're told in Rome in Revelation 19, as far as I can tell, the only time we're told about Jesus' clothing, and this is what the writer of Revelation John tells us. He says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. We're told what he's going to wear when he returns. A robe dipped in blood. We haven't studied much eschatology, but just understand that that blood's not his blood. That's the blood of his enemies because he comes to make war and to bring justice and to bring judgment to a world rebellion what a tremendous contrast from the swaddling cloths in Bethlehem to a robe dipped in blood you know today just like in the first century the birth of Jesus and the true meaning of it goes largely unacknowledged nobody really acknowledged it when it took place in the first century nobody understood what was going on apart from Mary and Joseph but today, people largely celebrate Christmas and have no idea what it really means. 
They sing, they'll sing carols and exchange gifts and decorate homes and decorate trees and give lip service to things like peace on earth and goodwill to men. Maybe even attend churches services. But most people will fail to acknowledge and recognize the true meaning of Christmas. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. Many people will celebrate the season but only a few people will celebrate the Savior. I trust that you'll be one who celebrates the Savior because he alone deserves our worship. He deserves our humble bowing before his lordship and our genuine love and gratitude. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Marvelous and amazing. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He chose to for people like you and me. Let's pray. Jesus, our minds spin and try to understand the depths of what took place in that animal shelter, whatever it looked like in Bethlehem. Just the physical part of it we get. Mary gave birth to you, a child. the supernatural dimension of it makes our minds spin. You weren't just a child, you were God being born to a woman. You set aside your divine attributes willingly for a season. Took on flesh and took on a human body and took on a human mind. The limitations of space and time you walked among men and you lived a perfect life you showed us what righteousness looks like and you told us that to see you was to see the Father and then you died in our place you paid the price for our sin that we might have redemption what you promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden you made good on at the cross You could do that because you are God. And you could do that because you're man. And we are eternally thankful. Just like there was nothing about Mary and Joseph that made them worthy of the honor of being your parents, there's nothing in us that makes us worthy of your sacrifice. But we are, while not worthy, we are grateful. May we celebrate you, our Savior in these weeks leading up to Christmas, not just the season. Help us to do that, we pray, for your sake and your glory alone. Amen.